Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, you know what, guys? Uh, I'm not going to mess around today. Okay, we're talking about Enneagram Type 3, uh, so let's not waste any time. Let's just jump right into it, okay? Uh, uh, TJ Daw, tell us what movies we're going to talk about and why we picked these movies. We're looking at Type 3, so we're doing Edge of Tomorrow and Molly's Game, two movies with prominent three lead roles, and in the case of Edge of Tomorrow, Tom Cruise, who I might be wrong in saying this, but I don't know that he has ever played a character who isn't a three. If you look up type three in the Enneagram dictionary, there is a picture of Tom Cruise at the top of the entry. Yes. And in fact, when I'm teaching this in organizations, I often say, just think of any movie character Tom Cruise has ever played when it comes to the type three, because he really does embody a type three. And I think he comes to embody the United States as well. Almost everybody living outside the United States would identify the United States as a very type three culture. I think uh, it's true. And, and Tom Cruise sort of embodies that American ideal that way, with all due respect to uh, non-U.S. Americans up and down the globe. So, um, so uh, TJ, why did we pick these movies? Edge of Tomorrow, I think, shows a really great growth arc for a three. It's also really atypical to what Tom Cruise usually plays. He always plays a three. He's a three in this. But, you know, as we'll get into, he's not charging out of the gate like the shining three that he is in Top Gun or in the Mission Impossible movies. Right. And then Molly Bloom, again, we see a really interesting character arc of what happens with a three. And we're going to get to a story pattern that I find emblematic of threeness. Good. So let's talk about type three so that uh, everybody understands exactly what we're talking about here. Enneagram type three, I refer to as striving to feel outstanding, right? So it's this need to feel like I'm doing well. Whatever it is I'm doing, I'm doing it well. Now, it's not the kind of perfectionism that we might see in an Enneagram type one. It doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, you know, for threes, often good enough is good enough. And I've had threes tell me, well, you know, if it's not perfect, we'll just spin it so that it looks perfect, okay? Which is where the idea of a spin doctor comes from and, you know, all these things. So threes have this real wiring that says achieve, right? Set me a target, give me a goal, point me in a direction, and let me run. I always think of greyhounds when I think of threes, right? If you've ever seen a greyhound, you take them out into the field and you take them off the leash and they've just got to run. And this is how threes often feel, too. They want to set targets for themselves. They want to achieve that. One of the challenges for threes is that they're often getting their sense of identity mirrored back to them through other people's perceptions of them, right? So it can be kind of playing to the audience very often. And this can cause the sense among other people that there's a lack of sincerity in the three, We'll, we'll talk more about this, but um, in my experience of working with threes, they're just as sincere, if not more so, as most people. And I think we find this with Molly Bloom even when we get into it, this um, real concern about her identity and who she really is and who she presents to be, but you know, we'll come back to that. Um, and they can be very emotional folks too. Um, you know, It's not uncommon when I work with threes for them to start crying when they start talking about how important it is to provide for their families, for example, right? to take care of the people around them, to set a good example for the people around them. And I think it comes from a very genuine place. Now, when it comes to the other two strategies at the connecting points, point six and point nine, the strategy at point six of striving to feel secure is what we call the neglected strategy. This does not mean that threes never want to be secure, but they have this fear of being average, right? They have this fear of just blending in, and they like to take measured risks. They don't avoid risks. Now, they don't stretch too far most of the time, right? Threes have a good sense of the appropriate risk zone, right? Something has to be challenging enough that 
it's worth doing, but not so challenging that I might, you know, there's a good chance of me failing. Okay, so, uh, but that's kind of the, the disconnection they have with point six. And then the support strategy of striving to feel peaceful is found at point nine. And this is the three's need to seem like they have it all under control all the time. This is another big theme with uh, Molly Bloom in uh, Molly's game, that this appearance of having everything under control and then finding out halfway through the movie she didn't have it under control at all. Okay, uh, We often see this with threes. Everything looks calm and peaceful and under control on the surface, but underneath it's not. When we talk about the core qualities of point three, uh, it's this idea of value. Right, They struggle with understanding that they have inherent value independent of accomplishment. Right, This gets stunted in them in their childhood. And so they're trying to prove their value through their accomplishment, through impressing other people and losing sight of, I'm just valuable because I'm a human being. Okay. Um, point six is confidence. There's this lack of confidence. This is one of the things that is not often talked about in the Enneagram world because threes are seen as these confident people. The reality is there's a lot of anxiety in threes. There's a lot of nervousness about not being able to achieve, of failing, of um, you know not working hard enough, not being seen in the right light. So you can see a lot of anxiety underneath the surface of threes. And then the other point we have is this uh, core quality of benevolence at point nine. It's this idea of being inherently good. So what we see in the three, and actually what we're going to see when we talk about the sixes and nines in future episodes as well, is this wrestling with the core qualities of benevolence, confidence, and value, or am I good enough? Am I a good enough person? Do I have what it takes to survive? And do I have value? And this is what the three is trying to establish. In the classical Enneagram, we have the, um, uh, the, the vice of deceit. Now, these vices get tricky, and we've talked about this a little bit with the uh, previous episodes. It gives the impression to people sometimes that threes are liars, right? That they're phony, that they're deceptive. The reality is that the vice refers to self-deception, to fooling themselves into believing that the image is the real thing. So... Threes are no less honest than people of any other Enneagram type when it comes to their interactions with other people, but they're fooling themselves and, you know, therefore can be fooling other people inadvertently. One of my favorite science writers is a guy named Robert Trivers. I wouldn't say he's one of my favorite science writers because he hasn't written that many things, but he's very influential in evolutionary biology. And he wrote a book called The Folly of Fools. And this book is all about how, because we are living in competition with other members of our species, we have come up with these tricks to, you know, outcompete others. And one of those tricks is to be deceptive, right? If I'm going after the food and you're going after the food, I'm going to trick you so that I get to it first. I'm going to deceive you in some way. And Triver says that one of the easiest ways to trick another person or fool another person is to fool ourselves first right if i believe the lie i'm telling you then i can sell the lie even better okay so you know trivers point is and i think he's absolutely right we are kind of wired for self-deception and this is a point that the three really exemplifies okay this idea of self-deception about who i am Uh, the fixation is vanity which is kind of a falling in love with the image. And the uh, virtue is veracity, right? Finding truthfulness in the world, finding out what, uh, discovering what the world really is like and what I really am like and who I really am is the path for the three. Guys, anything you would add about threes? One of my favorite quotes from Seinfeld is when uh, Jerry is trying to get George to uh, teach him how to beat a lie detector test. And George isn't a three, he's a classic six. But he says, Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Is it fair to say, you talk about the three as striving to feel outstanding. Uh, Is it fair or is it too oversimplified to say that as much as a three 
wants to feel outstanding, they also it's it's as important for them to be seen as outstanding. So that even if they aren't succeeding, the image of succeeding is just as important. Yeah. What I find is that as they sort of slide down, you know, the levels of health to use the Riso Hudson terminology, if I don't feel successful myself, I'm at least going to make you believe that I'm successful. And in Awareness to Action, we talk about the three under stress, that they become more focused on the image of the thing than the thing itself, whether that be their success, their accomplishments, and so forth. So absolutely. But again, I think it, it's all a issue of psychological health. Right? When a three is psychologically healthy, they really are looking for authentic accomplishment in the world. And a, an authentic contribution, too. Right there's this, again, this perception of threes in the Enneagram world that they're self-centered and all about themselves. But I'll tell you, I work with so many threes who are so committed to making the world a better place in some way. Right, they're very often involved in uh, you know charitable or philanthropic works. They really do want to make um, uh, contributions to other people. I was just with a CEO this week of, uh, of, a, of a company who was a three, and as he cried, we, we were talking for two hours and he cried twice during that two hours first time we ever talked right or first time we met in person and as he was talking about his family at one point and then as he was talking about uh, um, you know some of his employees he, he actually started getting teary and it was completely legitimate right he wasn't play acting for me yeah just to build on that a little bit is just how important image awareness is to a three each of us projects some sense of ourselves. Yes. So it's not like threes own this, but threes are more attuned than most others to what am I giving off and how are people taking that in and wanting to send out the image that I want. And that can be in any field whatsoever. You know, and in the American culture, because American culture is so focused on certain kinds of success, it's easy to think of threes are all movie stars or they're all corporate CEOs, whereas a threes image that they want to put out might be, I'm the perfect mother and homemaker, or I'm the I'm just the best tattoo artist in this tattoo shop. Like it could be in anything, but they want to look like the thing and have others look at them and see the thing that they want yeah. to be perceived as. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right regarding the um, the cultural elements, for example. I often use the example of the Tibetan Buddhist monk uh, Tartang Tolka, who was actually one of Claudio Naranjo's teachers. But he um, came to the United States and started a publishing company. And all of his books are this mix of, you know, spiritual development, but mixed with self-help, right? Uh, on, you know, how to be more successful in life, how to, you know, uh, make more money, pay your bills, run a business, you know, all these sort of things. So it's this very three-ish blend of legitimate spirituality with doing this in the world, right? It's great stuff. So, um, so there is that. I think we also have to be sensitive to the way that the three different instinctual biases of the three play themselves out because the preserving three is not as obviously image conscious as the other two are. Um, it's there, right? But it's much more subtle, much more nuanced, and it's much more around being outstanding in the preserving domain. So it's getting stuff done that the preserving three is all about. They're the classic task-oriented workaholic of the threes. The navigating three is more focused on fitting in socially, right? Looking like the people in my group, but just a little bit better, right? It's, you know, I, I want to be like everybody else, just better, okay? Um, whereas the transmitting three is the one that's kind of the classic stereotype of the, I'm really awesome. You know, I'm going to be all I can be. It's the Tony Robbins, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Oprah Winfrey version of the three. Okay, let's jump into the movies then. So we're going to start with Edge of Tomorrow. And I'll tell you something, guys. I love this movie. I've seen this movie a bunch of times. And I just I just had great joy watching it again. And it made me really remember my appreciation for the director, Doug Lyman, who has made some really fun, really good action movies, including Mr. and Mrs. Smith, 
the first Bourne movie. I think he's, that's the only one he did, as, as far as I can recall. Who's going to tell us about Edge of Tomorrow? That's me. All right, go ahead, TJ. Okay, Edge of Tomorrow is a 2014 science fiction action film directed by Doug Liman, as you said, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. The movie is set in the near future when Earth is under attack by an alien race known as Mimics. In a desperate attempt to win the war, humanity has developed exosuits and weapons, but the Mimics always seem to anticipate and counter their every move. Tom Cruise plays Bill Cage, a cowardly public affairs officer who is thrust into the front line of battle against the Mimics. And in a battle, he is killed, but he wakes up to find himself reliving the previous day over and over again. He meets Emily Blunt's character, Sergeant Rita Vertasky, who is also known as the Angel of Verdun for her heroic efforts in a major battle. Cage learns that he has gained the Mimic's ability to reset time, giving him a chance to live the day over and over again until he learns from his mistakes and can find a way to defeat the Mimics. He teams up with Vertasky, and they go through many iterations of the same day, honing their skills and trying new tactics to take down the enemy. The film is a thrilling action adventure that explores themes of sacrifice, courage, and redemption. I'm going to tell you a story. At first, it's going to sound ridiculous. But the longer I talk... We have to find the keys. The more rational it's going to appear. I can't believe you found coffee. Sugar, right? Yeah. Hold on. Three. You like three. How many times have we been here? How many times? For me, it's been an eternity. This is not the The invasion will fail. We lose everything. This is not I die within five minutes of landing on that beach, along with every other soldier. How did you do that? Come on! Come find me when you wake up! TJ Daw, how did you like this movie? I loved it. I saw it for the first time a few years ago because it came up on some list that somebody had shared of like 20 movies that failed at the box office, but that are actually really good. And I took a note of that because when I read it on that list, I'd never even heard of it. And so I looked it up, watched it. It blew me away. And it was a joy to watch again. And I believe a great example of type three. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that it was on a list of movies that failed at the box office because it made almost $400 million, I think $370 million, but it was not considered a great success because it cost $175 million to make. So it barely made its money back, um, um, you know, the way they calculate these things in Hollywood. But I'd also never heard of it. Like, I don't remember it being released and I pay attention to that shit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, TJ and Gracia, what was your what was your impression of this movie? I love it. It's just it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's an action adventure movie, sci fi elements, but it's just so much fun. Uh, the the sort of the the hook of reliving the same day over and over again, and then Tom Cruise's uh, performance, which is counter to most of his other performances, which we'll talk about when we talk about Type Three. Uh, yeah, it's just a really fun movie overall. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of things, you know, the, the fun aspect of it is interesting because it is a fun movie. And as I was doing some reading about this movie, they consciously made it feel like a video game. And so it, it's like watching a, a video game. So what happens is, you know, when you play a video game, you get to a certain point and then you die and you go back and you start all over again and you go and you try and go a little bit further. And each time you play the round, you know where the zombies are coming from or where the pitfalls are, that sort of thing. So you get better and better until you get to a certain point where you can't anymore. And that's kind of the theme of what happens here. Yeah, it's not explicitly a video game movie, but I think it's better than most explicitly video game movies. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. Um, and I also think, as I was watching it again, I think this was probably Tom Cruise's last great acting performance, right? I, I don't know exactly what movies came after this, but it seems to me, because I was kind of blown away about how likable Tom Cruise was in this and how there were these small moments where he was just really charming and engaging and, you know, just w w could say a lot with a small look. And then after this, he got, he kind of turned into stuntman Tom Cruise, 
for you know most of his films i'd have to go back and look again at his filmography since then but it made me think about man this guy really could act when he wants to yeah i think this is his best fun action role uh i mean i think his best role of all time is magnolia but that's not that film isn't so much fun as it is just an incredible performance. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, and and the most famous Tom Cruise line from that is not fa- family friend friendly, right. so I'm not going to repeat it here, although it is sticking in my mind. Most of what he says in that film is not family friendly. <laughs> All right, great. Um, so um, also it has our um, friend from last episode, um, Emily Blunt, in this movie who I just thought was fantastic in this, um, you know, made me really again, appreciate her, um, and what she brings. And I, and Brendan Gleeson who just, I don't know, has that guy ever given a bad performance? Uh, I, I just, I just think he is amazing in everything. One contributor to the excellence of the movie I think deserves mentioning is the, one of the writers is three credited writers. One of them is Jez Butterworth, who is, a playwright, a major British playwright. And I saw a play that he did that was on Broadway that was directed by Sam Mendes. So that had a cast of like 22 and it was three hours long. And when it ended, the entire audience gasped in unison, including me. So there's some secret firepower behind what's really good about this movie. There's, there's another Butterworth in the writer's credits too. So I imagine a brother, but anyway, like much more nuance and intelligence than would necessarily go into a video game movie that isn't actually based on a video game. Right, right. And it just, as you said that, it popped into my mind that there's a Butterworth in Molly's game as well. Uh, one of her previous attorneys was named Butterworth. Butterman. Right? Butterman. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. And there's a repeated <laughs> gag, right? Butterbean. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Butterball. But I jump ahead. All right. Great. Uh, TJ and Gracia, tell us, uh, tell us a scene or two that struck you as very three-ish about sure. this movie. Well, I think the thing that's so fun about this movie is that in, in most Tom Cruise films, all he has to do is smile and laugh, and he owns the room. He's in total control over everyone and everything around him. But this movie is like everyone is completely immune to his charms. He just over and over again is totally incapable of using his smile and his wit and his charm to weasel out of all these situations that he gets himself into. So to your point, TJ, that's, it's a great arc of a three character who initially tries, you know, he's basically, he's a coward, you know, and at the beginning, uh, the general wants to use him to sell the war because obviously there's going to be a lot of body bags coming back. And so the general wants uh, to spin it in the best possible light. And so he's going to send Tom Cruise's character to the front line. He's a public relations media guy. He's not a soldier. So he First, he tries to charm the general and talk about, you know, other people he could recommend. And then he turns to blackmail, you know, and anytime you try to blackmail Brendan Gleeson, that's not going to go <laughs> very well for you. Right. So he gets arrested, thrown into the barracks. Uh, basically, his identity is stripped and he's just a no a nobody private. He tries to outsmart Master Sergeant Farrell, a great performance by Bill Paxton. Yes. One yes. of my favorite lines in the film. Uh, we should say that they're in, they're sort of allusions to the D-Day invasion. They're stationed in England and London, and they're, the next morning they're going to cross the channel and attack the enemy in France. And uh, Bill Paxton has a very heavy uh, Appalachian Kentucky. So, yeah, accent. And Tom Cruise says, oh, you're an American. And he says, no, sir, I'm from Kentucky. <laughs> My other favorite Bill Paxton line in the movie was uh, when he says, oh, why they call it Science Hill? And he says, never ask, don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just the the initial sort of few scenes uh, with Tom Cruise's character is sort of what you'd think of as the classical sort of stereotypically unhealthy three. He's trying to charm his way out of these situations. He's trying to spin things to make them sound way better than we know that they are. And it fails for him. And that's why it's fun to watch because normally Tom Cruise just succeeds endlessly at whatever he does. Um, and then to skip ahead to the end of the film, to, to where he has this arc, eventually he loses the power of being able to reset the day. But uh, at this point, even though he loses the power and now if he dies, it's going to be actually game over. He and Rita 
uh, push on to try to go kill this. It's called the Omega. It's sort of like the alien queen, basically, that controls all the other aliens. And he finds his courage. And he, some of the, uh, what do you call it? Oh, the, de- the derailers that you talk about for threes. You know, he overcomes some of these things. Not seeming knowable, seeking recognition, the individual contributor syndrome. They bring, you know, he brings in the whole squad. He makes it about Rita. He knows that they're not going to follow him, but he says, you know, I'm not going to ask you to follow me, but you're going to follow her. She walks in. And so he minimizes his role and he, he really comes to accept that it's not about him. It's about helping her to accomplish this mission. So I think that's a, that's a really good arc going from coward to finding his courage in the end. Yeah. I like that. That's good stuff. TJ Doff. Just to throw this in, when you describe him as a coward, that's it's not something he wears on his sleeve. He definitely is, but it's not the performance that you would expect of of a phobic six in that role. Like so, if you can imagine Albert Brooks or Woody Allen playing that role, it'd be very different. He comes off as a very slick spokesman, which he is. And when we first meet him, it's in a montage that's giving the backstory about the alien invasion, and he's talking to the camera on the news very, very well. He's excellent at being a spokesman. He's saying, "We'll fight." That's what we do. And he says this with the grounded authority of somebody who's been in battle, even though he hasn't. So the cowardice is something that he wears beneath the surface. It's something that nobody knows about himself but him. And then we come to know it when he absolutely tries to weasel out of battle. So there's that arc, you know, and part of what's going on, Mario, as you were saying before, for threes is they have a lot of fear, but they keep that shit hidden. They keep that shit hidden from the world and quite often from themselves. And that's just a mechanism that threes develop growing up quite well is like, let's take that fear and let's put it in a box and let's hide that box somewhere way deep down inside that no one would have any idea how scared I actually am. Let's just go out there and do the job. And then the arc of him too, is that he goes from not wanting to be in the battle at all to being willing to sacrifice his life. So in the climax of the movie, he gives up his what seems like he's giving up his own life, he does end up getting doused in the alien blood and then waking up the next or the previous morning and then all is well again. But he doesn't know that in that moment. In the device that they establish in the movie, by that point, he has lost the ability to reset the day. So he really thinks he's going to his death. No one will find out what he did. This is simply done for the betterment of humanity and of the entire planet. So that's quite the arc for a three as well, is I'm going to do this outstanding thing. I'm going to give my life for it. I will never be recognized for it. But why am I doing it? Because it's the right thing to do. Because it's good. Yeah. And that phrase, because it's the right thing to do, I think, again, is something that is not really, not generally associated with threes in the Enneagram literature. And it's something that we'll see in uh, Molly's game as well of what is the appropriate behavior in this situation. And there are times when I could take an easy way out, but I don't because it just wouldn't be right. And that would sully my own image of myself. And I just can't bear that. So uh, I think that's a really important nuance to understand about what goes on for a lot of threes. It is important for them to do the right thing not just look like they're doing the right thing or make other people believe they're doing the right thing when they're healthy. Another thing, so there were a number of scenes here. One of the things I I liked that uh, it was kind of a recurring theme was the incompetence of Cage, the the, the, the crew's character, early in the movie, right? So you see this, this steady progression of fighting ability in cage right he goes in not even knowing where the safety is on the weapons that he's wearing right but and then he becomes this you know super rambo-esque character as it goes but it's through hard earned work practice over and over and over again right uh which was just fun to see and i think the director said or somebody said that uh, one of the joys of doing this movie was portraying tom cruise as somebody who was incompetent in the beginning of the movie because it is so inconsistent with how he's usually perceived right we don't we don't see ethan hunt as an incompetent spy early in his career right you know that sort of thing or or maverick as an incompetent pilot Um, uh, so uh, that was a nice part there and Uh, something about that just to add to that is when we did our episode on three referring to reese witherspoon we brought up 
the montage, the training montage, which is something that's very common in American movies, particularly in the 80s, and very much a three-ish thing of like, let's see this person acquire a new skill. Let's see them radically improve. Let's see them get really good at the thing. The training montage in this is a little different because Tom Cruise is in the exoskeleton and he's fighting a bunch of training robots and he gets his ass kicked again yeah. and again and again. Over and, and over he, and over again. Yeah. And he keeps being sent flying in really unflattering ways. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so many times where he gets hit and just goes, blah, and his limbs splay and he falls on his ass and breaks a bone and Rita has to come up and shoot him in the head to restart the day. But it's like, that's not the cool training montage that you would expect from a three character. And when you describe him as eventually turning into a Rambo, yes, except we don't see it happen within that montage. And right. even when he is extremely competent in the latter like quarter of the movie, we never see scenes with him without his shirt on. We never see scenes where he's just so unbelievably heroic, the way Arnold Schwarzenegger was for right. basically any moment of a Schwarzenegger movie in the 80s. We see him do well, but not outshining Rita on the one hand. And yeah, never being what you would expect Tom Cruise would be in a movie where somebody becomes really good at killing aliens. Right. I think that was one of the nice things about this too, is kind of the um, the gender role reversal between the Cruise character and the Emily Blunt character. She was the one training him. Right. She was the one grooming him to, to be better. She was she was the badass, right? Uh, not him. He was kind of what we would usually see in the vulnerable woman role, right? Who needed the protector of the man. Well, th this was different because, again, she was what was the, the name for her? The um, uh, the angel of Verdun or the full metal bitch, the full metal bitch. Yeah, is the one I'm thinking of. Right. So she was she was a badass. Right. And uh, Emily Blunt's really good at playing a, a badass, as, as we've seen uh, over the past two episodes. So um, real impressed with that. Um, any other scenes jump out as particularly three-ish to you guys? This isn't so much a theme or a scene, but an overall theme in the movie is well, the, the very fact that it's a time loop movie. So you can't help but compare it to Groundhog Day. And there are other time loop yes. movies as well. Uh, try, fail, learn, improve, do it again. Very much a three thing of like, let's have another crack at this. Let's get better. And in the case of Bill Cage, even though he's getting his ass kicked, he never whines. There's no despair. Right. Like in Groundhog Day, there's a sequence near the middle where the Bill Murray character is trying to take his own life multiple times, where he just sinks into indulgence. There's one scene when one day where he just skips out of it, finds a way to escape, goes to a pub and has a beer. But there's no scene where He's just like, let's see how many people I can have sex with, or like, let's see how many drugs I can do. There's another time loop movie, Palm Sunday, that uh, covers some similar territory. And it's Andy Samberg who's caught in the time loop, and you get the sense that he has indulged. And it's interesting to think of time loops with different Enneagram characters mm. stuck in them. So the arc in Groundhog Day with that character being a four, as we talked about, is very much like, how can I get to the place where I'm not sneering at people anymore, where I'm actually doing good for the sake of doing good and being nice and seeing the beauty and originality and value in others? Uh, in, in this, it's very much like, how can I get better at what I'm doing? How can I improve and be right. this thing that is really needed in this situation and get the job done? Yeah. I think the only other moment where he gave into a little bit of despair perhaps was one of the times when he watched her die you could see he's starting to fall in love with her and he watches her die and it and he just has this moment of you know what i i can't do this again today <laughs> right it's like you know and he, he's walking in the rain and you know that sort of thing but but you're right um he uh, he keeps at it he's persistent i, I want to talk about as we're talking about three we're going to be in the in the Upcoming episodes, we're going to be talking about types six and nine or nine and six, whatever order we go in. We're into the inner triangle now. And when we start talking about these three Enneagram types on the inner triangle of the diagram, we start to see the same issues over and over again because they're all connected to the same points, but they're put into sort of a different dynamic. Okay. So whereas the 
the preferred strategy of the three is striving to feel outstanding, that is the neglected strategy of the nine. Okay, they're still dealing with issues at point three, but dealing with it in a very different way than the three is. Same thing happens with the core qualities. They're all dealing with the stunting of benevolence, confidence, and value, but they're doing it in a different way that creates for a different character sort of structure. Okay, so it's it's important to keep those uh, those elements in mind, but also we're talking about a very specific aspect of the Enneagram as a process model. And when it comes to the Enneagram as a process, I like to use the inner triangle. Um, and I'm not original here. This is covered in uh, Naranjo's books and uh, Sandra Matry's books uh, about how the inner triangle, the Enneagram represents how we go to sleep to ourselves, right? How we lose contact with our true nature, so to speak. Point nine represents functioning on autopilot, right? We just do the same things over and over again without realizing we're functioning on autopilot. Point six represents that moment of waking up, right? We feel some anxiety and we snap awake to our experience. And point three represents the story we create to get us back on autopilot in some way. And this movie really captures that, right? but it also captures the opposite of that, which is how we wake up, which is about waking up, paying attention, right? and then the step of authenticity, which is rewriting our story in a way that's more skillful and more matching reality, and then taking action based on that new story. So as we watch this movie, you see that waking up moment over and over again, right? He he wakes literally. up on that, literally, right? <laughs> Every time he dies, he comes bursting awake on this pile of duffel bags, you know, uh, reliving whatever painful death he just suffered for a moment, right? And then he starts the day over again. Here I go. But each time he goes through this, he's rewriting his story. I mean, literally rewriting the story. Instead of doing this, I'm going to do that. Okay, this will get me to the direction I want to go instead of doing that and so forth. And this is what we all have to do in order to grow, is to understand how our existing stories hold us in place and keep us from taking skillful action to going to rewriting those stories so that we can change our behavior. So I just wanted to point out that this movie, much like Groundhog Day, really captures that transformation process as it's represented in the Enneagram. It's almost like that journey you're talking about. It's like a journey from awareness to action. Almost. Is that how you're describing that, that, it? That is exactly how I'm describing it. Yeah. All right. Which, by the way, is available from Amazon.com or at your better bookstore. No. Okay. Um, all right. Um, okay. So we're all big fans of Edge of Tomorrow. Listener, if you have not seen Edge of Tomorrow, I really, really recommend it. Uh, it's a fun movie. It's uh, an interesting movie. Do not try to understand the actual plot of, you know, how he's stopping time, why the, what the mimics are trying to accomplish, all that stuff. The more I watched it, the more confused I became about, you know, huh? What? Okay. But you know what? Just roll with it. It's a fun, fun movie. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. So let's go on and talk about Molly's Game now. Uh, TJ Daw, tell us about Molly's Game. So Molly's Game came out in 2017. It was written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by Aaron Sorkin, his first bit of directing. It's based on the true story of Molly Bloom, who wrote an autobiography. She's played by Jessica Chastain, whose potential as an Olympic downhill skier gets derailed by an accident in a qualifying round when she's 20. She relocates to LA and with no experience in the gambling world, ends up running a regular high stakes poker game and later does this in New York. 
and the players include movie stars, musicians, athletes, business moguls, and eventually mobsters, playing for pots that sometimes amount to hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. The framing device for the story is her arrest 12 years after she began, and her interactions with her lawyer, played by Idris Elba, and eventually her appearance in court. She winds up pleading guilty to running an illegal gambling operation and surprisingly gets let off without prison time and then now is just left to rebuild her life. We spent eight years in Hollywood and two years in New York running the world's most exclusive and decadent man cave. Have you seen the other names in your indictment? Come on, Marty, just out deep into the Russian mob. Where are you? Your exposure's crazy. You got 2.8 million on the street right now. You're gonna get blown up. You managed to build a multi-million dollar business using not much more than your wits. I'm about to be charged in federal court. Well, nobody's perfect. There's a new offer on the table. Complete immunity. We hand over the hard drives. You've seen what's on those hard drives. Families, lives, careers will be ruined. Why are you in this alone? Where are the people you're protecting by not telling the whole story? I'll tell them everything they want to know about me. About me. That's it. TJ, what about this movie was three-ish for you? TJ Doll. From the moment I saw it, the character seemed incredibly three-ish in that she comes seemingly from a family of threes where we find out later in the movie that it wasn't just her who was a hotshot skier growing up. Both of her brothers were, and they're very much trained by their therapist father, who's played by Kevin Costner. Not quite clear whether he's a three or a one, but it's very much a three-ish family culture. And then her life gets derailed from this random accident. It is completely random. And then what does she do? She goes to LA to take a year off before law school, in which she has plans that she will rise and rise through the ranks and eventually head her up her own law firm and then start a nonprofit and instead winds up running these poker games and she gets really good at it. So there's the process of radical improvement that happens again and again. And even when her running these poker games gets derailed, happens that the game just gets taken away from her twice. What does she do? Builds another one, builds it bigger, builds it better. Again, a lot like Bill Cage, no whining, no despair, Maybe just a brief moment where she hangs her head on the side of a car. And then, all right, back in action we go. Uh, TJ and Gracia, what for you was three-ish about this movie? Any scenes jump out? Let me think if there's any specific scenes. Well, there's, yeah, there was one quote. Uh, people have asked me what my goal was at that point uh, after she had started the game. Uh, what was my end game? Back then, I would have laughed at that question. I was raised to be a champion. My goal was to win. At what and against whom? Those were just details. Pretty three-ish. <laughs> yeah. I think, quite frankly, almost every scene of this movie is three-ish, right? I mean, it starts off with her talking about her accomplishments and training to be an Olympic athlete. Now, it's within the guise of setting up this horrible accident she had, but it's all about training and working and effort to be a champion, like you're saying. Uh, when she goes off and builds her own business, it's the same sort of thing. There's a couple of things. Uh, she said when early on when she's younger and her father is interviewing her on the uh, videotape, he asks her, you know, do you have any heroes? And she says no. And she says something to the effect that, but if I reach the goals I set for myself, then I'll be my hero. Right? So it's really, uh, you know, tremendously driven. Now, there's more complicated reasons why she doesn't have heroes and about her you know, relationship with her father and so forth that come forward later. But um, it really is all just about striving to be outstanding, to be successful in this movie. Everything is about that and being accomplished, being achieved. And what was interesting to me because one of the themes of the movie was, you know, so the FBI arrested her. They were trying to um, um, uh, send her to jail in a RICO case with all these mobsters. Okay, She wasn't involved with the mobsters. They were trying to put pressure on her and threaten her by taking away all of her money, threatening, threatening her with jail time in order to get her to testify against these people. And she wouldn't do it. Right. When she got the contract to write a book, she would have made a whole lot of money had she named names, but she refused to do any names that were not all reveal any names that were already not publicly disclosed. And 
the reason that she wouldn't do this is because it would, you know, yes, hurt other people, but that was secondary to her. It would damage her sense of her own success and her own honor and her own name. And so it was all about, if I give in here, then I did not achieve what I really believe that I achieved. So that was fascinating to me, again, where these acts of integrity came from a very different place than they would in, say, a one. Yeah, and also she wouldn't let her lawyer, her lawyer was trying to make the case or, or, or part of their case would be that she really wasn't as important. Yes. Her role wasn't as big as what she claims it was. And she didn't want him to do that, I think, <laughs> right. partially because, hey, that diminishes the role. Hey, I built this business. I really was very successful. I should get credit for that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, do you guys know who Player X was in real life? Toby Maguire, I've heard. Rumored to be Toby yeah, Maguire, yeah. Yeah. So um <laughs> I, I I remember, you know, hearing that some years back, I think probably either when the book or the movie first came out. I've never been able to watch Toby Maguire the same way <laughs> you know, since then. She calls the uh the character in the film, she calls him a green screen little shit. Yes, yes. Um one three-ish theme in this film. And I'm sure I'm sure you'll have thoughts about this in terms of her subtype, but she wasn't a three, at least to me. She wasn't super flashy in the sense of like, hey, everybody, look at me and look how awesome I am. Now, she would get herself dialed up. You know, at one point, her lawyer says that she's dressing like the Cinemax version of herself. (laughs) But it seemed like she was doing that because that was the role she needed to play to get the attention, to get the big action and keep the guys interested. And so even though that's not maybe her natural personality, she made herself what she needed to be to be successful. And that's a very three-ish thing. Yeah. Um, I would, so I went back and forth on the subtype because I also was looking at, um, um, I didn't see any videos, but I watched, you know, I saw some pictures and read some um, interviews with the real Molly Bloom. The real Molly Bloom seemed like more of a transmitting three to me. But the character in this movie struck me more as a navigating three, okay? Because you're right, the um, the sexiness in her presentation wasn't really sexual, okay? And she, while she talked a lot about her accomplishments, it wasn't the Arnold Schwarzenegger-ish, I'm awesome, I'm the best at this, I'm the best at that sort of thing, right? It was almost matter of fact when she talked about her accomplishments and it was almost like a sense of duty and fulfilling of destiny and expectation in her rather than self-aggrandizement okay so i i would have probably seen her as more of a navigating three in this movie that's my sense as well she does a lot of listening especially uh, in the earlier parts of the movie when she's new to the world of poker she knows that she doesn't pretend otherwise, but she Googles like what kind of music do poker players yes. like to listen to later when she's setting up her own poker game. She does things like set up a card table and gets this gizmo to do the automatic shuffling to put it in and but make scented candles that have the kind of smell that she finds out poker players like and that yeah, she doesn't make it all about her, even though she is running it. She's very much in the background and that culture is very much big shot men playing who like to feel like big shots. So let's surround them by beautiful women showing a lot of cleavage. Right. There's a lot of cleavage in this movie (laughs) just in general, but there's no sex. Right. There's no mention of her having a boyfriend, having a one night stand, having really a personal life at all. Yeah. You know, I hadn't even thought of that, but you're absolutely right. There is no romantic relationship for her character yeah she makes a point of saying that she's never slept with any of the players right she's certainly never sold sex for money or allowed any of her staff members to do so like that's that's not why she's dressing like that yeah there's an element of her finding a place in the world and then excelling within that place right so she's kind of drifting when she ends up being ordered really by her uh, boss to you know, kind of oversee the poker game. And for her, it was just another task. And then she became kind of fascinated with it. And it's almost like she said, ah, I have found my lane here. 
right? I have found where I fit in, what my position is, how I can, where I can be outstanding. And, and she went for it. Sounds pretty navigating. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's good. Good, good observations. Uh, a couple of other things. Um, yeah. I, I mean, just again, everything was about achievement in this movie. Even she uses her spare time, not only Googling terms and, and music lists and that sort of thing, but studying astronomy. Right. There's one scene where she says, yeah, I just I just realized I was 12 credits short of a degree in astronomy <laughs> getting online because just she wanted something to do to fill the time. So just a huge, huge achievement. And the movie ends with this uh, quote from Winston Churchill that's really great about what success is. Okay, Because that's the thing, it, it, you know, at the end of the movie. Her life is a mess, right? I mean, she's owes the IRS, you know, I forget how much, but it was, you know, millions of dollars. Uh, she, you know, is in debt to her attorney for $250,000. She's got nothing. And yet she stands up and she's going to be strong and she's going to survive. And the quote from Churchill was, uh, success is the ability to move from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm which I thought was just a wonderful way and really encapsulated this character. One really minor moment I liked is when she's she's got her crew of former Playboy playmates that she's going to use to find players for the New York game. So she's showing up in New York with no connections there, no connections to movie stars or anybody like that. And she gets them to promise that there will be a member of the New York Yankees at the game. And that's how they're going to entice the players. What you do is you don't say his name, you write it on a cocktail napkin <laughs> and then crumple it up and put it in a glass of water so the ink visibly dissolves. One of them says, is that really necessary? Not at all necessary. And it's just this beautiful moment of her awareness of like the image has a lot of power. Yes. We don't really need to do that. But if we do that, it looks incredible and that will reach the people that we want to reach. Yeah. I, I don't want to um, leave this movie without talking about Kevin Costner because, uh, you know, I'm a Kevin Costner fan, I guess, right? I mean, he's you know not somebody that I would put in my pantheon. Oh, there's a Kevin Costner movie out, but I got to well, go Dances see it. with Wolves is one of your all-time <laughs> favorites, right? <laughs> Very different character in this movie. You know, and, and, and I think Kevin Costner has two modes, right? He's got the likable you know, sort of dances with wolves character, field of dreams, you know. And then he's got the dark Kevin Costner, which is the one I love, right? <laughs> uh, you know, the... Um, Big surprise. <laughs> his his uh, character in Open Range, for example, the Western with Robert Duvall. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it's just a wonderful modern western and uh, he's great in that the Clint Eastwood directed movie A Perfect World where he plays um, I don't know some kind of criminal who's escaped and I, I just think he's fantastic in that and even though this character wasn't a criminal or a murderer he had a dark side to him right there were, you know not only was he cheating on his wife he was obsessively tough on his children he started transferring into that gruff and raspy Kevin Costner voice that he has now. You know, if you, if you watch Yellowstone, it, it's like, whose voice is that in Kevin Costner, right? But uh, it really effective. And I think that scene where he's with her in Central Park and they're sitting on the bench and he's doing the three years of therapy in three minutes and all that sort of thing. I think that was just incredible acting. I thought that was such a powerful powerful scene and Kevin Costner was so good in that that uh, for me that would have been worth watching the movie quite frankly so I read a review of the film that said in an Aaron Sorkin script you either die resenting your father or you live long enough to become your resented father and there <laughs> daddy issues are a constant theme in this movie I think <laughs> yeah I like that I'd also uh, like to shout out Idris Elba who I think is a wonderful actor. Wouldn't be surprised if he's a three in real life. His character in The Wire, I think, is a fantastic yes. example of a three. And I think this character, this lawyer character that he plays is very much a three. Right. And some of the trivia behind the scenes is they only had him for a few days of filming. Ah. And these are dialogue-heavy scenes. They're dense. They're very much like theater scenes. And you've got two excellent actors because it's pretty much always just two-person scenes between him and Molly Bloom. And they just knock it out of the park. like. Two professionals doing what they do very, very well. It's very three-ish, 
even though the content of the scenes isn't about outstanding, about becoming outstanding, they both are. Because that's a lawyer whose retainer costs 250,000 bucks. <laughs> he's at the top of his game. He's a hotshot lawyer. Right. And he's the real thing. Right. And he knows how the system works. And he knows it very well. And he's charming. And he's good looking. And he's passionate. And he's well spoken. And you could say all the same things about her. So it's a joy to watch them play those scenes together. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, and I agree. He was wonderful. I did detect a strange sort of uh, speech pattern in him. Uh, you know, as we know, he's British. And so very often when he's uh, acting in US-based roles, he's taking on a, you know, an American accent. But it almost was like the character had, I don't know, a little bit of some sort of accent I couldn't detect or, you know, was a, a slight speech impediment or something. I don't know, did you guys notice that? Am I imagining things or? I pretty much always notice that when it's a non-American doing an American accent. There's okay. some part of me that's like, okay, how are you doing with that? Because sometimes it's seamless. Yeah. And then sometimes there's just the occasional change in vowel sounds or in rhythm that it's like, oh, okay, you probably didn't grow up speaking this. Yeah. That, that, that could have been it because he's usually better, I think, with capturing the American accent. At least he was with The Wire, but... It could also just be having to chomp through that Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Uh, you know, I was thinking it's almost just like how Wes Anderson has a very distinctive visual style. Aaron Sorkin has this very Sorkin-esque, you know, just the TJ, I'm sure you could speak more to like, I can't even put my finger on what it is, but it's like, I know it when I hear it. And that's definitely an Aaron Sorkin script. Well, it is very theatrical because he got his start in the theater. He got a degree in musical theater, and then his first movie was based on his first play, which was A Few Good Men. And he still writes for the theater. You know, he's got a very successful production of To Kill a Mockingbird that's in the theaters. So yeah, he very much comes from that tradition, which is interesting given how so how visual the movie is as well. Like yes. there's a lot of quick yes. cuts and editing. It's visually very yeah. creative for a dialogue guy's first bit of directing. Yeah. Also, we should keep in mind that he's probably a type seven and had a cocaine problem. So you've got a coked up seven writing dialogue. You know. There's a it's, lot of words in a very short time span. So, but, uh, but yeah, great. Uh, I, I, it was, it really was a fantastic script. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I'm a big fan of, of Sorkin's work. So, um, but I think they handled it. I, I don't mean to be critical of Idris Elba's performance because I think he was fantastic. It's just a, a, I think what happens when you watch a movie too closely multiple times in preparation for a podcast, you notice little things, right? So uh, uh, let's see, uh, anything else to say on this movie? Go, go ahead, TJ. Yeah. One theme that I see a lot in stories about threes, and it's relevant to everybody, is the notion of the empty victory. So threes are very much oriented towards if I accomplish X, I will feel that sense of value. I will be esteemed by the people that I want to be esteemed by. I will actually feel like a real boy. And then in some movies like this, they get there and it doesn't satisfy them. So there's a scene later where she's taking drugs and unlike some other types, she's not taking drugs for fun. She's taking drugs in order to keep achieving, in order to stay up later, to keep her focus. And she says, anything that could keep me up for a few days and knock me out for a few hours. It was dark and friendless where I was. I felt like I was in a hole so deep I could go fracking. I was tired of living in the frat house that I'd built for degenerates. I was tired of the greed, mine, not theirs. I was sick of being high all the time. I couldn't recognize myself. And what I recognized, I couldn't stand. And that's just such a beautiful encapsulation of like, be careful what you wish for. Because if you reach the highest heights, what happens when you discover that it isn't all that? And that that sense of value you've been chasing might have been there for a little while because that external validation, it's, it's not nothing. Like it, feel, it does feel good, but it wears thin. And now what do you have? And the movie obviously doesn't show a complete presentation of what her life was like. But as we were saying before, there's no mention of relationships. There's no mention of friendships. There's no mention of what she does in her spare time. What does she do to refresh herself? Does she go to the movies? Does she just work out so she can maintain her body? Like, there's no indication of that. It's just work, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve. And then you're just left with the emptiness of that. When we uh, talked about the core qualities of value, 
the, the struggle of the three is feeling value independent of accomplishment. Okay, just feeling, you know what? I, I'm just valuable because I am. And accomplishment becomes the replacement for that. But it's like trying to satisfy an itch on your right shoulder by scratching your left shoulder. So all the accomplishments, I thought I would feel better, but I still feel the same itch. So you're right. This is what she felt over and over again. And you made the comment about friendship. And one thing really struck me in this because she's talking about her chauffeur and security guy at one point. She gets in the back of the car and she says uh, about him, uh, we didn't know much more about each other than we needed to know, but I liked him. We were friends. Right. And so this is her friend. The guy that she doesn't know anything more about than she needs to know, and he sets her up to, you know, fall into the prey of the mafia, okay, which, you know, doesn't end up well for her. Um, so it really struck me, to, to your point, TJ, not only was there not much talk about friends, the only talk about friend, a friend, was not a friend at all, okay? It was an acquaintance that actually did not have my best interest in mind, so... Good, good, good observation. There was another thing she, um, when she's testifying to the uh, prosecutors or talking to the prosecutors during the deposition, and they make some, um, I forget what they said that brought this on, but she said, well, I was high at the end and not doing a good job, right? So even that, she talks about her drug addiction, not only to help her succeed, but also the reason that brought her down. And she talks about it just very matter-of-factly. Right? I wasn't doing a good job because I was high. Okay? And that's what happened there. Again, just a very three-ish focus on the job itself. All right, great. Uh, TJ Dahl, uh, tell us more about threes in movies. So you'll find a lot of threes like Tom Cruise who are the lead roles in blockbusters. So as we said any movie with Tom Cruise, but he's built his career on blockbusters more than anything else, although he's done many movies. Will Smith is another example. Practically any role he's ever played. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Reese Witherspoon, Pierce Brosnan's James Bond, and Roger Moore's James Bond. And with all of these actors, you're very much seeing like these are people who can open a movie where people will see the movie because they're in it. Uh, there was a spell of years that I was in Toronto for the Toronto Fringe Festival every time July 4th would roll around. And there was this one building where they would show, they would paint the entire side of it with the poster of an upcoming Will Smith movie because he was always opening a movie on the 4th of July. Because <laughs> like the studios just knew. Independence Day 1, Independence Day 2, right? <laughs> Men in Black. And like Men in Black was based on a comic book, but not a well-known one. Will Smith was the draw when that movie became a big hit. So that's, that's very, threes are great at that. Not all movie stars are threes, but like when threes are a movie star, they shine unselfconsciously. I remember seeing Men in Black in the theaters and just recently I watched Men in Black with my kids. So oh, wow. I'm, oh, there I'm, you go. I'm getting closer towards your uh, demographic, Maria. <laughs> yeah. And they loved it. Yeah. It's, it's oh, such a fun wonderful. movie. Yeah. Such yeah, a fun great movie. Fun. Uh, there's a lot of threes and triumph over adversity stories, whether this is in a movie, TV, in a book. Oprah, as we mentioned, very much a three, and a lot of her guests are threes because they have that exact bootstrapping triumph over adversity stories. Also, I find threes make great villains. Uh, when a three is a villain in a movie, they're often a hyper-efficient psychopath. So a few examples of that include Wall Street, uh, The Dark Knight. I think Heath Ledger's Joker is a very good three. The Boys, there's a character who's kind of a, an evil version of Superman oh, called yeah, Homelander, yeah, very yeah. much a three. Killing Eve, Villanelle is a great assassin in that. Die Hard, I think the, um, what's his name? The Hans Gruber. Gruber character, yeah. What's the actor again? Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman plays a great three in that. Basic Instinct, Sharon Stone plays a very good three. Also, All About Eve classic movie, best picture winner, and deservedly so. And Ann Baxter plays just a brilliant three. And then in the world of TV, Mad Men, Don Draper is just one of the best threes you will ever find anywhere, as well as Captain Kirk, whether he's played by William Shatner or Chris Pine. Yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. All right. Good. So, um, uh, so our two movies today, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, 
which actually had multiple names for, for, for one. It was originally Edge of Tomorrow, and then it became Live, Die, Repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, now I think it's back to just Edge of Tomorrow, whatever we want to call it. Great, great fun movie. Highly encourage it. And Molly's Game for me was kind of a sleeper in in my mind because when I first watched it, I didn't really think much of it. I forget even why I watched it the first time because I didn't really know anything about it. And uh, I think it was just kind of one of those moments where nothing better to watch and really, really enjoyed it and enjoyed watching it again twice in preparation for this podcast. So highly recommend the movies. All right. So next time we're going to talk about Enneagram Type 9. And uh, again, like I said, we're going to see some of the same themes coming up, but manifested a different way. And that is what always for me is very interesting talking about the types along the inner triangle is how they are, in a sense, distortions of each other. So I look forward to exploring that in future episodes. Guys, as always, thanks for being with us, and uh, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.